Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. In the summer of 1914, as the Russian Empire was preparing to go to war, a Siberian peasant called Grigory Rasputin wrote to Nicholas II, the Tsar of all the Russians. I know they all want war from you, Rasputin wrote, evidently not realising that this means ruin. Hard is God's punishment when he takes away reason. It's the beginning of the end. You are the Tsar father of the people. Don't allow the madmen to triumph and destroy themselves and the people. Yes, they'll conquer Germany, but what of Russia? If one thinks then truly never for all of time has one suffered like Russia, drowned in her own blood, great will be the ruin, grief without end, Grigory. And Dominic, um, I mean, that is an amazing letter, is it not? I mean, it is kind of properly prophetic. It is very prescient. It survived. It's one of the, it's extraordinary that it survived. Nicholas must have kept it with him after he went into, um, in, when he was, went into captivity. Um, which is extraordinary. But the fact that it's being sent by a peasant to the autocrat of all the Russias, you know, this guy who thinks he's basically, you know, who's the last sort of absolute monarch in Europe, um, ordained by God. And he's getting advice from this sort of bedraggled, yeah, from this peasant, this uh, relatively uneducated. And this peasant is at the heart of, you know, of great events. So the descent of Europe into war, Russia's role in it. Um, in the long run, the the, the Russian Revolution. So yeah. today's episode is is focused on Rasputin, a figure of enormous kind of historical fascination, and we've had a lot of questions, a lot of questions about him. Yes. and I would say the overwhelming tenor of those questions. Well, I'll, I'll read one from uh, Benjamin Bitten, who uh, I'll quote: yeah. "Is it true that when his drinking and lusting and his hunger for power?" became known to more and more people. The demands to do something about this outrageous man became louder and louder. Is the words a there, of course, not only from Benjamin Bitten, but from Boney M, uh, who's uh, Rasputin uh, has been name-checked so many times. Yeah. In well, the most people will know him through Boney M, won't they? More yeah. than through history books or anything like that. So was well, he before, the lover of the Russian queen? I mean, that's Well, the- before <laughs> we get onto that, Tom, Um, I have an exciting announcement for our listeners. Do you? So, well, we've been going for more than a year, just over a year, I think. And, um, we've been, we've been thrilled, haven't we, by the reaction from, um, people listening to the podcast. So thrilled, in fact, that we've decided to set up our own community, our own club. The rest is history club. Do you want to tell people about that? Uh, you can listen to every episode, including the archive without ads. I know, because the ads don't, some people don't care for your, some of your ads, I think it's fair to say. I think, I think you I think you've won in particular. I don't want to put off that mental health <laughs> charity from investing again in that show. Yeah, <laughs> like, you, you, you're going on about Tiny Tom. I mean, that joke was funny the first hundred times, but if you want to get rid of that, um, you can yeah. sign up to this and you'll get every episode ad free. You will also get an extra episode every week, the content yes. of which will be led by you, the listeners. So we will, you know, if you've got views on the episodes that you've heard, if you want to carry on the conversation, uh, let us know and we will kind of go over that. Um, That's right. And if you sign up now, you will find the first of these episodes is is up right now and there'll be a preview out tomorrow. On the main feed. So if you, even if you don't sign up, 
you'll get a preview of that bonus episode. And Dominic, what's that? What is that episode on? Aptly, it's on history's greatest clubs. So the Kit Kat Club, the Hellfire Club, um, a gentleman's club that I believe a member of the Rest is History team is a is a member of. Um, <laughs> and now the Rest is History Club. Um, and the Rest is so, History Club. So that's great. And and also we will be doing a live streamed episode uh, once every month. For club members, yeah. Uh, and the first one will be next week, so Wednesday the 15th of December, uh, and we'll be doing that on the 60s, the 1960s. Uh, yeah. So you can watch and you can contribute to the episode. Um, yeah, you can send an so, abuse while we're recording it, yeah, um, which yeah, will be exciting can, for you. You can kind of laugh at Dominic while you're doing it. Um, and also there is apparently there is a chat room community called Discord, which just I mean, it <laughs> seems absolutely, per- absolutely perfect. Um, so you can join that and we will be discussing episodes, taking suggestions um, and, and giving reading lists, won't we? Yeah. It says here, sharing historical memes. Will you we're be not going to be Tom? doing that. No, we're not going to because I'm not. <laughs> I'm over 50. It's far too. Yeah, yeah. If, you're, if you start posting GIFs or whatever, I should be very disappointed in you. I occasionally post a GIF, but I'm not a meme. Um, <laughs> right. So uh, so that's part of it as well. Uh, and there are other benefits as well. And how do you get, how do you sign up to this incredible offer uh, when you go to <laughs> restishistorypod.com, restishistorypod.com, or you can click on the link in the show notes. So it's really simple, actually. It's very simple. It lives in whatever podcast app you normally use, it says here. I love hearing you say that. <laughs> uh, you could, and you can, it takes you 30 seconds to sign up. Not even 30 seconds, actually, because I've done it. <laughs> and it took about four, five seconds. So I'm afraid you do actually have to pay for this, but it's absolute bargain, isn't it, Dominic? It's a bargain, a bargain. It six is, pounds six a month. pounds a month. So that's maybe less than two pounds a week. Um, now the important thing to say is that if you, don't care for you're not you're unclubbable uh and you don't want to join and you want to carry on listening for free then you just carry on listening as normal nothing has changed you're just missing out on the live stream the bonus episode the chance to see tom holland's memes all that stuff. <laughs> but um although the positive is, is that you'll hear my adverts for mental health so <laughs> that's swings true. and roundabouts yeah it is <laughs> you know, ups and downs it's win-win you win some you lose some. <laughs> yeah yeah you do right okay so that's enough um that's enough uh self-promotion yes so that that that, that basically the bony m lover of the russian queen yeah that's his reputation it's all it's all well we'll unpack all this we'll unpack all this so should we start by talking about who rasputin is um so he's born in 1869 he's grigory yefimovich rasputin and he comes from a place called pokrovskoye in just over the urals in siberia an absolute kind of flea-bitten kind of um down at heel kind of village in the middle of nowhere but free isn't it so siberia is free once you go across yes. the Urals, you're no longer a serf exactly so people have gone there his family i think gone there in the 17th century is it um yes yeah, 1643 they settle good knowledge so That's the year after knowledge. the outbreak of the uh, civil war That's um, how i remembered it um, so they've been there all this time and they've done nothing they've left no mark in history they have this odd name so what what english sort of speakers won't get is that rasputin the, the surname, it's a bit like being called Mr. Rascal or something, isn't it? Because our Rasputnik is a sort of ne'er-do-well or there's something to do with the crossroads that I don't fully understand. <laughs> yeah. um, but basically the um, the, the name is, is sort of a loaded name. You know, it's clearly a kind of a name from the lower orders and a sort of scruffy ne'er-do-wells kind of name. But isn't that, I mean, I've often read this about the, about the settlement of Siberia 
that it's kind of like Russia's World West. I suppose it's yes, the World East, isn't it? I think it? exactly that's exactly um, what it is. And, and it? so the, the, the kind of the hint of the frontiersman. Um, Absolutely. And it's also, it's not, but it's got something a bit more than the American frontier, I think, because there is this hint of, well, something that dogs Rasputin throughout his life is this stuff about religious sectarianism and heresy. So there is this sense, if you're in St. Petersburg, particularly, or Moscow, I suppose, that out there on the Siberian frontier are all kinds of weird sects and they're worshipping devils and all this sort of stuff. But also the converse of that, that somehow you are close to God out there. Yeah. Uh, so, so if Rasputin's name has the kind of the slight hint of, of the sinister about it, his first name, Grigory, he's named after Gregory of Nyssa, who is one of the, the great saints of fourth century Byzantium. Um, he's actually, I mean, interesting in the context of serfdom, he's the, um, the, the, the church father who first argues that, um, the, sl- in, that slavery as an institution is unacceptable to God. Um, and so you do, it's this kind of strange mix of the, the kind of the rascally, the, the kind of frontiersman with the very holy. Uh, yeah. And the question of whether Rasputin is a genuine holy man or whether he's a, a kind of sinister fraud, of course, is the great question that comes to royal Russia and continues to kind yes. of perplex historians to this day. Um, but the funny thing about him is that we know so little, isn't it? So that there are lots of things written about his early life. So, for example, there's a claim about him as a young man that he was a horse thief. And that um, the other villagers were cross with him being a horse thief and they threw him down on the ground. Did you see this? They threw him down on the ground so violently that he fell on his genitals and (laughs) from that point onward suffered from terrible (laughs) priapism. So he had a permanent erection. Um, This is totally untrue. Um, Completely untrue. Utterly utterly untrue. In fact, we know nothing at all about... Sorry, go on. What about his penis? No, we'll come to that later because that will play... We do know about his penis, don't we? Yeah, we know that there's nothing very interesting about it. Well, apparently is... it was quite dark. <laughs> it was quite dark brown. Yes, I heard. I... But it wasn't particularly long. Is it dark brown? Well, I thought the guy was saying the rest of him was dark brown, but his member wasn't. Anyway. Oh, maybe. Well, anyway, not... it's, 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 the, the it has an interesting colouring. Let's, let's say that. <laughs> but it's not there. particularly long and it's not permanently erect. No. So he he's there in this village. He's a peasant. He marries a peasant woman called Praskovia, and they have, they have three children. So he's got an absolutely standard life. And then he clearly has, in 1897 or so, when he's a, just late 20s, coming up to 30, he has some sort of breakdown, doesn't he? Well, it, I mean, for, on the, I guess on the kind of the measure of, a, of the Russian peasantry, it's a midlife crisis. Yeah, it is. It absolutely is. He just thinks, God, this is awful. I'm going to go on a pilgrimage. So he wants to become, there are these people called the Straniki. So he wants to be a Stranik, which means he's going to go off and he's going to commune with nature and with God. And he will wander about the countryside. Wearing chains, right? Yes. He wears fetters at first. So this is very kind of, you know, it's very kind of Byzantine behavior, isn't it? You can imagine somebody doing this in Syria. Kind of holy sort of. Exactly. Exactly. This is what he does. And he pitches up at a place called Verkaturia in the Urals, which is a monastery. And this is a place where there's lots of elders and stuff. And anybody who's read Dostoevsky will know the import, the importance that sort of holy men and elders and monks and people of this kind. I mean, they're all different kind of versions. Brothers of Karamazov and all that. I mean, exactly. I have to say that, um, the, the reading about Rasputin, who I, didn't know a huge amount about i mean just really boney m was basically the limit of my knowledge but i do love um dostoevsky and throughout reading about him the echoes of dostoevsky's novels absolutely just keep keep kind of coming um and I, yeah. I guess that 
you know, a lot of the themes that Dostoevsky is tackling are, are obviously part of, of, of this kind of the, the, the tensions and the, um, social conflicts, religious conflicts, the, uh, the stresses in Russian life. That, that part of the reason, obviously, I guess, why Rasputin has this cut through is that he just embodies all these tensions. He does, doesn't he? So it's about sort of the clash between the urban modernity of St. Petersburg and this kind of, you know, vanishing world of kind of a mystical rural peasant Russia. That's all there in Rasputin's story, isn't it? And it's all there in, you know, it's there in Dostoevsky's work in, in, in crime, the picture of St. Petersburg in crime and punishment. Once you've read that, it's yeah. quite hard to rid yourself of that when you're reading about Rasputin when he finally goes to the imperial capital. So anyway, yeah. he, he decides he want, he's, he's had this pilgrimage. There's no reason to doubt that this is sincere. I mean, because what's in it for him? He's, he's left his village. He's gone on the pilgrimage. He comes back. He decides he wants to be kind of a holy man. Well, okay. So, so, so I think, I mean, I think there's, um, th- there's a question here from, uh, thoughtfully Catholic. Yeah. Did Rasputin propose anything theologically unorthodox or was he simply one of the many charismatic figures within the national, the normal framework of orthodoxy? So essentially, was he, you know, was he a heretic? No, um, I don't think he was. Or, or was he a, a, a conventional, you know, was he conventionally religious? Well, I mean, you and I have both read this book by Douglas Smith, this amazing biography, incredibly detailed biography of Rasputin and Rasputin's life and times. And running through this book is the is the suspicion that people had, particularly in sort of his rivals within the orthodox kind of world, but also kind of aristocrats and officials and stuff in St. Petersburg, that he was a sectarian. And they were particularly anxious and worried that he was what's called a clist. So these are kind of flagellants. And these are seen as absolutely beyond the pale. There's about 100,000 of them in Russia at the end of the 19th century. And there's all this talk. He must be a heretic. He must be, you know, a sectarian. He's whipping himself. But this seems to be completely untrue. That actually, theologically, he's pretty standard. But the, the, the Klisti are um, supposed to to dance and then to end up having kind of vast orgies. Yes. yes. And there's, there's that subsection of them that you talked about in our program on eunuchs. The Scopsi. The Scopsi, that they hack off their testicles or their breasts yeah. or whatever. Um, and again, you get this kind of, this obsessional interest where kind of extreme radical desire for God, asceticism, kind of blurs and blends into kind of basically a genital obsession. Yes, that's you. <laughs> I mean, yeah, well, that's why I find, this is why I'm, I find this subject so interesting. Um, yeah, but anyway, I don't think this is right with Rasputin. I think Rasputin, because in Douglas Smith's, I mean, it's an amazing biography, and in his biography, he has lots of stuff from Rasputin's letters and what people heard him say, and so on. And it's all kind of quite, it's all a little bit primary school head teacher, you know, God is love be in touch with the natural world, yeah, be kind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's absolutely nothing outlandish or or that anyone... It's actually so, quite bland, do you not think? Kind of thought for the day. It is very thought for the day. Rasputin <laughs> would be an absolute regular. <laughs> anyway, so good. That, that path was not open to him. He officially gets investigated, doesn't he? He does. Well, there's multiple and, investigations. And, they just and he gets go, a kind of clean bit of on help. And, on. and I thought that one of the one of the really interesting comments on him was made in 1918, so after he died and after the Russian Revolution, when no one had any interest in, in sticking up for him. And somebody passes through his village and they ask about him. And the, the overwhelming consensus is that he was a, a, a kind-hearted person uh, and that he was a man of God. Uh, yeah. And that, I, I mean, that seems to... Uh, I think the evidence 
that he was essentially an orthodox figure seems pretty clear to yeah, me. Yeah, I think I think that's 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 pretty right. But anyway, no one would care about him if he hadn't made this journey. So he goes to Kazan, which is this kind of Tatar city, and he's a bit of a. So this is a, we should paint the context, shouldn't we? Because Russia is in a very bad place when he's on his sort of travels in the late eighteen nineties and early nineteen hundreds. It's um very repressive, very divided. Um, in, in some ways, incredibly backward. So, you know, serfdom is within living memory. Um, a lot of people in the countryside living in intense poverty. But at the same time, it is industrializing and urbanizing at a, at a kind of breakneck, a kind of Chinese rate, which mm. causes all kinds of problems of its own. The political system hasn't caught up. It's at kind all, of buckling so and straining system. under. Absolutely. The yeah. And all the elite are. They, like a lot of their counterparts elsewhere in Europe, they have become obsessed, but in this incredibly sort of neurotic, morbid way with the occult, with seances, with hypnotism, everybody believes in what they call dark forces. So it's just a absolute standard belief among the sort of Russian elite that there are, there are conspiracies, often with the Jews yeah. playing, a, or the Freemasons playing key roles that are responsible for all the ills of Russia. And because of that fascination, it means that when Rasputin, he merely has to arrive in a place, it seems, and kind of aristocrats and bigwigs will take him up and be interested in him and sort of show him off as a bit of a grotesque yeah, in their yeah. salons and stuff. But I think also, I mean, one of the things that that, that um, I picked up from my admittedly cursory reading of the, the kind of the, the climate into which Rasputin enters is that actually the hint of the the kind of the sinister the the demonic uh intermixed with the saintly is actually incredibly appealing to people um yes. that that's kind of a selling point so there's this this terrifyingly kind of clearly charismatic and 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 basically diabolic figure uh alexei is it shdetetinin i hope my pronunciation <laughs> there is right beautifully beautiful <laughs> russian yeah who who is a clist i think yeah. Um, and he arrives in St. Petersburg in 1906, which is basically around the same time as, as Rasputin is turning up. Uh, and, and he is, I, I mean, he is basically a kind of a drunk, a rogue. Um, he uh, encourages his followers to give them, give him all their money, to give him their wives. Yes. Um, and it's an awful, awful thing that he, he wants his followers to do, which is to, to, to put that is to give their children over to him and he will then put them in orphanages. That's right. Yeah. So that they will never be able to find them, even if they then repent it. And it's yeah. just awful. Yeah. And then he gets he gets put in prison for for raping a, a underage girl, uh, ra- rather like um, Stavrogin does in Dostoevsky's um, uh, The Devils. Yeah, I mean it's all kind of incredibly reminiscent of that. Uh, and and women who go to see him in prison because he you know they kind of remain obsessed by him. They write about him as being both God and Satan at the same yeah. time. And this is all the kind of stuff that will then be said about Rasputin. Exactly. But I think that, that Rasputin is not of that order really at all. Well, he will, just, his behaviour of- is a bit dubious. We'll come to his behaviour, I think. I think you're right that Rasputin is not... There's no reason at this point to believe that he's a fraud or a charlatan or motivated purely by self-interest or by greed or anything like that. He's he's just found his calling and and his, and his, his path leads him to St. Petersburg. Now, when he gets to St. Petersburg... He's taken up by, or he comes to the attention of these two 
Montenegrin sisters, aren't they? Called the black, yeah. the black le- women or the black crows. They have very, let's call them the black crows. Yeah. That's, that's never a, a very a appealing, never a very appealing <laughs> label, I think. So the black crows are connected with the, the royal family. They've married into the imperial family, I think, haven't they? And they, and through them, I think he gets to meet Nicholas and Alexandra. Is there also there is, um, uh, there's a, a very high ranking official kind of bishop archbishop in the orthodox church theophan oh yes who's yeah, a big theophan fan. yeah there's also um, another bishop isn't it called germagen who castrated himself yeah. um so it's always you know this <laughs> is basically the milieu in which rasputin is yeah. is moving a very sort of strange and feverish kind of world so nicholas and alexandra i mean it's, we should talk about them a bit shouldn't we so nicholas born in 1868 alex as she's called so she's queen victoria's granddaughter i think yeah. isn't she yeah. Um, and she's terribly serious and earnest and she's German. German, yeah. Um, and everybody hates her basically. Cause she, sh- she has that thing of, that people sometimes have. She's very shy and anxious. And so everyone thinks she's being haughty and she just never ever adapts and, and ne- quite uh, clearly never really understands Russia and they don't understand her. And basically she and Nicholas become increasingly isolated. All the other people in the elite despise them. Yeah. Um, and they never, they're politically utterly useless and inept and and also um alexandra carries hemophilia she does well she has already so she's had four daughters um olga tatiana maria and anastasia and she's desperate for a boy very sort of henry the eighth style thing going on at the court she's desperate for a boy and so she's already had one kind of crank hasn't she this guy called monsieur philippe who's yes, a um kind of- Cultist. He's a butcher's apprentice from Lyon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's a a hypnotist and stuff, isn't he? And he pitches up at the court and they hang around with him. Eventually, everyone persuades them to kick him out. But it just shows that Alex... is very susceptible. They're both incredibly susceptible. Um, But specifically, isn't it the the haemophilia of their son when he gets born? Well, yeah. So they've had four daughters? Yes, and then Alexei is born in 1904. So he's the heir. And he's hem exactly. They realise pretty much straight away that he's hemophiliac, and the base of the life expectancy is about thirteen. So if you're if you're if you're neurotic, if you're isolated, if you're desperate for a male heir, this is a terrible emotional position yeah. to be in. I mean, she's living- so vulnerable to yeah yeah. And what's then worse is that exactly as Rasputin arrives in in Saint Petersburg, the, so this this sort of European style foggy city on the banks of the Neva in the far northwestern corner of this this kind of closed world where everybody is plotting and there's just this sort of miasma of, of sort of, I don't know, morbid kind of introspection and stuff. Um, there's been the revolution in 1905. So they've lost a war to the Japanese. Troops have fired on the crowds. There's been rioting and all sorts of disturbances across the country. And Nicholas has been forced to grant a consti- effectively a constitution constitutional monarchy which is the one thing he never wanted to do yeah. because he his father had told him you know that way lies degeneracy and you must rule as an autocrat and you must never give up any of your authority so just when they're at their lowest ebb they meet rasputin and i think a lot of it is that they see him as the as the sort of soul of russia um, yeah. at a time when no they have no friends and they feel they have no political allies and all their family hate them kind of old and, russia the heart yeah. of old Russia. Because he, lo- he, uh, yes, yeah. 
Because he's quite conservative, isn't he, politically, Rasputin? Incredibly. He, you know, yes. he sort of says... I mean, he has an oh, absolutely medieval sense of the Tsar. Exactly. As the God-appointed father of So he people. basically says exactly... Because Alexandra knows that Nicholas has the spine of an amoeba. Yeah. And so she, he basically... She's very keen for him to hang around with Rasputin because she thinks Rasputin will sort of... You know, will, will man him, him up. Man him up, exactly. Yeah. Will man him up. And Rasputin is constantly saying, you know, be strong... The people love the czar. They hate the politicians, all this kind of stuff. Um, but I suppose Rasputin also, it's not just what he says. It's how he's, because he is charismatic, isn't he? He clearly well, he has. has amazing eyes, doesn't he? I mean, that's, that's the thing everybody goes on about, that they kind yeah. of burn and blaze and reach deep into you. And he has this, he has this persona. So he plays the part of the kind of holy man. He has the beard and he, the way he, his sort of peasant, everyone always says he has terrible table manners. He yeah. kind of rips apart the food with his hands and all this kind of stuff. But again, that so, kind of Byzantine idea that, you know, that the emperor and the peasant and that, it, that in poverty and in, in, uh, yes, it, it, kind of the dirt and soil of, of the peasant lands, there is their true Christianity is to be found. Their, their, yeah. their, their truth is to be found. And, and Rasputin is a kind of walking embodiment of that idea. But but pretty much straight away, or, or quite early on, people around the court start saying he's no good. You know, mm. there's something dodgy about him. So you, you have rumours. So there's this story. There are these stories that he basically sits on the girls' beds when they're going to bed and stuff. He's all very fond of kissing, isn't he? He's very fond of kissing. I think he's um he's, a he's quite person. He's <laughs> if he were a Mister Man, he'd be Mister Tickle. I mean, yes. he's he's quite handsy, and I think um well. Maybe we should get into Rasputin. Should we have a break and then come back and talk about Rasputin and women, do you think? Do you think that's yeah. a good plan? Okay. That's an amazing yeah, cliffhanger. What a cliffhanger. So, yes. uh, we, so, so we'll be back. Obviously, um, if you've just rushed to take up our exciting special offer, you won't be listening to adverts. But if you haven't, you will be. And we will hear you back after the break. Regular listeners to um, to the show should be familiar now with Unheard, U-N-H-E-R-D dot com, uh, which is the online magazine that's very kindly sponsoring the podcast um, and for whom both of us, Dominic, have written, have we not? We have indeed. They're offering a special deal to Rest is History listeners, three months free subscription, which can be cancelled at any time. Normally one pound a week. Uh, go to unheard.com forward slash rest to claim it. Um, and uh, this week, they've suggested a couple of uh, articles that uh, listeners might be interested in, prompted by the theme of Rasputin. Yeah, modern Rasputins. <laughs> and the one that they've, the modern Rasputin that they've cited is Dominic Cummings. Yes. So they've written about him quite a lot on Unheard, they say. So they've got an article. I remember this article actually about Aris Rusinos. And he basically said that whatever Dominic Cummings' shortcomings, his analysis of the deficiencies of the state was dead right. Cummings has insisted that the British civil service is essentially unreformable. And perhaps within the framework of the inherited structures of the British state, says Mr. Rusinos, he is right. But, Tom, not everybody agrees with that, do they? No. So Freddie Sayers, yep. not persuaded at all. Oh, my word. Uh, trying to exercise the persuasive element f uh, from government, centralising power in order to bully through the bureaucracy and trying to run the country like a science project isn't such a great alternative. Is Dominic um, Cummings Rasputin? I mean, Rasputin no. never tried to run Russia like a science project. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, but, 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 you know, the idea of the Ovimiter, Overmighty Advisor. Yeah. Um, you know, it's all, all but, good uh, stuff. No one accused Dominic Cummings of 
what would the analogy be? Sleeping with Prince, the late Prince Philip. I mean, <laughs> Dominic, that's 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 an, that's an absolutely shocking idea that I will now struggle to get out of my mind. Well, um, decide for yourself. Go to, <laughs> go to unheard.com/rest. And now back to the show. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Maybe you've just been listening to Tom Holland selling you mental health treatments. Or maybe you've been to restishistorypod.com to sign up for our special ad-free service. Either way, great delights await as we talk about Rasputin's record with the ladies. Tom, you have a question? Well, I mean, yeah, so this is the the, the big question, and lots and lots of people uh, ask this. Uh, We've got one here from Barry Grogan, friend of the show. Was he really the lover of the Russian queen and Russia's greatest love machine? Well, we, he, he wasn't Russia's greatest love machine. We've already dealt with that. Um, but was he a lover of the Russian queen? I would say no. Uh, definitely not. It would, definitely be completely, not. it would be completely and utterly alien to um, Alexandra's persona to have, you know, it would run completely counter to everything we think about her. We know about her. And the, the very allegation, actually, the weird thing about that Boney M song is what that Boney M song does is it reproduces perfectly these very scatological, kind of almost pre-sort of French Revolution, Marie Antoinette style um, kind of pamphlets and cartoons that circulated in the 1910s about Rasputin and Alexandra that actually, if you saw now, you would be horrified by their misogyny and their kind of anti-Semitism and all these kinds of things. Um, and that whole, all of that allegation that she was his lover never, ever went away. I mean, there was nothing they could do to dispel it, but it seems to be completely untrue. The, I mean, the echoes of Marie Antoinette are, are really fascinating. In fact, I mean, Prince Yusupov, um, the guy who ends up killing, murdering, um, Rasputin, he had, um, Marie Antoinette's furniture in his palace. <laughs> yeah. In, it is weird. <laughs> accusations against Marie Antoinette were that, that, that she was sexually insatiable and that she was a lesbian. And so Alexandra, she has this friend, um, Anna Vyrubova. Yeah, Anna Vyrubova, I think. Brilliant. <laughs> I don't yes. know whether that's Wonderfully said. said. Wonderfully said. <laughs> uh, and, and everyone said she had a, she was have conduct, have a massive fling with, with Alexandra. Um, yes, which is not actually, true. Actually, they were incredibly pious. Uh, and, and Anna was one of the people who introduced, you know, she was a great, massive fan of Rasputin. They'd all sit together and pray. Yeah. Um, and actually, Alexandra called uh, Anna the cow, which wasn't very... <laughs> you wouldn't call somebody that if you were, you know, leaping into bed with them, would you? I, I mean, it's very unlikely. So. I wouldn't thought. thought so. But, but Dominic, is it? I mean, again, so so all this. We, we, the, part of the question is how and why do these stories come about? I guess it, it's essentially the kind of inherent prurience in a pre-revolutionary situation where there's a, a foreign queen who people don't particularly like that these stories kind of generate and if you've got someone like Rasputin then they they really start to swell and am I not right that there is one incident in particular oh yes which takes place in 1915 at the Yar which is at kind the of Yar restaurant in yeah uh, in Moscow, in Moscow. So, tell us about that so this is one thing that a lot of people who'd known very little about Rasputin may vaguely have heard of so the first world war has started we'll come back to the first world war later in the episode but the first world war has started Rasputin has gone on a trip to Moscow um and he's gone out uh with some friends and they've gone to this sort of nightclub restaurant there's gypsy dancers there and he dances and he's with a great them. dancer he's, he's, a, he's he loves right. dancing he he's loves really dancing. good at it um but but why wouldn't he he's from a peasant village 
where folk dancing and stuff will be absolutely part of the sort of standard weekly entertainment. So it makes sense that he likes dancing. So anyway, he's there. He's he supposedly interferes with the gypsy dancers, kind of cuddling them and groping them and stuff. Then he gets drunker and drunker. We know that Rasputin did like a drink. He, he gets drunker and drunker at the yard. Uh, eventually, he starts shouting about how much, you know, the the empress loves him and all this sort of stuff and then basically he takes out his penis and starts waving it around and says this is the altar at which the empress worships through this i rule russia all this kind of thing and stories about this incident spread pretty quickly and have become part of they become absolutely a key part of rasputin's legend and their love machine kind of reputation are they true well they're not true because the, this guy, Douglas Smith, who wrote this fantastic biography, went back and looked at all the police files. And he found in the police files that Rasputin, that there was nothing about this incident, that this absolutely hadn't happened. That basically what happened was that the deputy interior minister, who was a man called Junkovsky, that Junkovsky had basically put the local um, constabulary up to subsequently concocting a report that was fake because he hated Rasputin and he wanted to bring him down. And that's absolutely the story of Rasputin yeah, in St. Yeah. Petersburg, is that he's getting it from everybody, from his religious rivals. So there's a monk called Iliador, who's oh, yes. kind of conspiring against him the whole time. He's a terrible man. I think, yes, well, who, who gets defrocked and imprisoned in a monastery, and then he escapes dressed as a woman. <laughs> he does, and he ends up in America, doesn't he? Yes. He ends up, um, he, he ends up in LA or something eventually. I so think he, him- he ends up as a kind of doorman. Well, York. he dies as a doorman. Yeah, but yeah. before then, he's associated with Hollywood in some yeah, weird way. Brilliant. Uh, so there's him, there's other bishops, but there's also lots of people within the kind of bureaucratic machine who resent Rasputin's influence. And the weird thing with Rasputin is that basically everybody projects onto him everything they don't like about the political situation. So people on the left, people on the right... You know, people who are just sort of monarchists. Well, and internationally as well, isn't there? Because because there's um, uh, there's a British diplomat who who says that he was at the ER and saw it. Yeah, uh, and then and it, it turns out actually he was in Kiev all along. Yeah, and, is that and, is that uh, Robert Bruce Lockhart? He says, right, yeah, yeah, I definitely saw it. Yeah, saw every saw yeah. every minute of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and so the more he... the more the more kind of prominent that um, that Rasputin becomes. The, the more he becomes a focus of international as well as as uh, internal Russian uh, yeah. conspiracy theories and Be- anxieties. Because it becomes a kind of shorthand, I think, doesn't it, for the kind of bonkersness of pre-revolutionary Russia. Yeah, I think That so. you can reduce it all to the relationship of these three people, Nicholas Alexandra and Rasputin. And, and the, the almost sad thing when you read the stories, their relationship is actually so innocent and almost kind of... It's almost quite childlike, isn't it? Yeah. They, 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 they get together and they pray and they talk, you know, they the kids look like Rasputin. Our they, friend. Our friend. He's there. I mean, they, 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 Nicholas and Alexandra send each other these incredibly childish letters where they call each other kind of lovey and all this yeah. kind of stuff. And they say, Oh, our friend is coming. I can't wait to see him tomorrow. Isn't it going to be nice? We can talk about God and pray. And, and meanwhile, out on the streets, people are distributing these. Well, I mean, I, I suppose it's fair to say that, according to the police records, he he did use prostitutes. He he yes. had a kind of earthy approach. Um, <laughs> well, he has this kind of heart, slight but, harem, doesn't he? Yes, he does have harem. a bit of harem, and um, he's compared by his myras to the biblical prophets who all had kind of harems and things. Well, clearly, what happens is that um, he attracts a lot of kind of. I think the word that Douglas Smith uses is, is emotionally fraught women. So these are kind of often aristocratic women whose husbands are basically 
you know, not the most faithful and are away a lot of the time. And these women have too much time on their hands. They can almost, you know, the, the sort of storm clouds of revolution are kind of gathering overhead. They, they, they turn to Rasputin for what? Spiritual sustenance, but they also end up getting something more. Um, and there's some, there's a story about, like, he goes on sort of what, like, the equivalent of a kind of school trip back to his village or something, doesn't he? With a load mm. of women and there's a lot of groping on the train <laughs> and then jumping into and out of bunks and stuff like this. And I mean, basically, yeah, I mean, basically he's, he's not very well behaved. You know, he drinks sometimes, he, but he's not, he's not a satire. You know, he's not, um, no. he's not, he, and he's not, a, I think, a rapist. There's claims that he was a rapist, but that seems, kind of unlikely not enough story and there's the stories yeah, are groping yeah. but he's so he's some way short of harvey weinstein i think is that fair to say <laughs> that's the commendation <laughs> well so let's look at it the slightly more positive side yeah uh so there that the, the key incident that absolutely nails alexandra's devotion to him uh is in 1912 at sparla at sparla yeah. So her, 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 they're, they're in a kind of uh, a coach. They're bumping. It's a kind of hunting lodge, isn't it? Yeah. They're right, in the coach. Alexei, her son, is bit jolted up and down and starts to, to bleed internally. And yeah, he's eight, I think, isn't he? And they all think he's going to die. And the doctors are kind of giving up on him. And Alexandra writes to Rasputin. And Rasputin is in his village in Siberia. And Rasputin writes back, God has heard your your tears and heard your prayers. Do not grieve. The little one will not die. Do not allow the doctors to bother him too much. And these words um, come true. Yeah, lo and behold. Now, the, the interesting thing is why. And as far as I can tell, the latest thinking is that basically, if Rasputin's words have any effect at all, they're just a complete placebo effect. They calm Alexandra. She completely believes in Rasputin. So and she presumably calm uh, Alexei as well, who also well because if your mum is, mm -hmm. but if your mum, if you're eight and you are bleeding internally to death, and your mum is 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 rushing Frantic. around your bedside and the doctors are prodding you and yeah, so you it's know, that line don't, don't allow the doctors to bother him. Yeah, the, the doctors because the doctors are making it worse, and uh, and and then if your mum gets a telegram and says, oh my gosh, it's going to be all right, you know, you will relax, and the argument is that Alex Alexei's blood pressure falls a little bit and he stops bleeding and or maybe it was a miracle. Well, maybe it was a miracle. It happens. Clearly, he has an effect on the royal fa and the imperial family, which is this very emotionally sort of intense yeah. household. Clearly, he does calm them down. Yeah. They like being with him. He tells them what they want to hear about how the Russian people love them. Um, they talk about God and nature and stuff like that. It's like a massive Sunday school. And um, that's what makes the story quite tragic in a way. I mean, he is badly behaved outside the palace. But I mean, badly behaved in it's not terribly. It's, yeah, badly behaved is possibly too strong, isn't it? I mean, and the thing is, I mean, he's not he's not a priest, is he? Um, no, he's he's not a monk. Uh, he's he's a man of God, which is different. It's it's not like he's breaking any vows. No, yes. he's not exactly. He's long. He's got a long suffering wife back in, you know, wherever it is, Pokrovskoye. But I don't think, you know, you don't get the impression she's terribly bothered. It's this kind of Byzantine strain within russia where it's 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 kind of less significant than it is say in a catholic or even protestant tradition um so i think yeah uh, so there's that and then and then 1914 so that letter that that we opened yeah the but show he's with, a, he, and we, he sends got, that from his sickbed though doesn't he 
So we've got a question from the reasonable doctor. Is there any good evidence that he did warn Tsar Nicholas that if Russia went to war against the central powers, then Sardom would collapse? I mean, kind of. I mean, that's yeah, there that's, absolutely that, is. That is kind of what he's saying. So he'd said he'd said that two years before in the Balkan Wars. By the way, he'd said don't go to war two years earlier. So so well, he's. I mean, so he's he's um he's an anti-war figure. Yeah. Uh, he, like a lot of the Russian peasantry, they don't like war generally. When Russia goes to war, the reaction of most of the Russian peasants is horror because they think, that, well, God, we'll just be slaughtered by our incompetent officers. And they will. So, they are. <laughs> yeah, and they are. Yeah. Um, and uh, he, what's really interesting is that basically, what is it, nine days, I think, um, something like nine, yeah, 11 days before the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, Rasputin has himself been the victim of an assassination attempt. So he has been stabbed in his home village by a woman called Kionya Guseva, who has no nose. (laughs) (laughs) Like the person who Nelson gave the snuff box to. Right, exactly. There's a definite theme here. But um, did you see the photo of her? She looked very unsettling, I thought. No. So so she has no nose. Her nose has disappeared in some... I don't know whether it's... There's some talk that it might be syphilis or something. She has no nose. She's as mad as a hatter. She has visions of the devil. But she's also been put up to it by, it seems, by Rasputin's rival, Iliodor, this monk who ends up fleeing to America. Yeah. So Rasputin has been stabbed. Uh, He pulls through. And it's basically amid this... So he's away from Nicholas. Now, there is a slight what-if... If he'd been there in St. Petersburg, could he have stopped Nicholas from going to war? I don't think he could, actually. I think that's his influence, I think, is a bit overstated. Clearly, he is influential, but not that influential mm-hmm. when all the army commanders are basically saying we have to go to, we have to mobilize, we have to stand by Serbia. But Rasputin definitely says disaster will, you know, don't do this. Um, and Nicholas, and Nicholas does. Him. Yeah. So it goes to war. And then Nicholas makes the stupid, stupid mistake of saying, I will take supreme command of the army. So he previously had had his, um, what is it, his uncle or something, Grand Duke Nikolai, who's a man who wants, did you see this at a dinner party? Grand Duke Nikolai once was asked how good his sword was. And he said, I'll show you. He drew his sword and, and um, sliced a borzoi dog down the middle. <laughs> that, that, have you you haven't seen the great have you no that that's exactly the that? kind of that's exactly the kind of thing that happens in that but he sliced his own dog i mean his own it says like his own beloved pet <laughs> well dominic if, if you watch the great you will not be surprised that right that, that happened well anyway this man didn't prove a very good commander of russia's no, well. armies <laughs> nicholas boots him out and says i'll take command myself which is an absolute catastrophe for the monarchy because it means that everything will now be laid at his door there's no one for him to fire and and Rasputin and Alexandra both know this. And so that yeah. kind of further cements their relationship because they're back in Petersburg. Yes. Kind of fretting about this. Yeah. And Nicholas is away at what's called Stavka, which is in modern day Belarus in a place called Mogilev. So Stavka is the army headquarters. So he's stuck there hundreds of miles away. And that means that all the attention back in Petersburg is now on Alexandra and Rasputin. And everybody says... They are running the country. They are selling us to the Germans. And you get this absolute kind of upsurge in 1915, 1916 of incredibly pornographic, aggressive mm. um, sort of attacks on Rasputin and Alexandra. They're Russian spies. They're in league with the Jews. All of this kind of stuff, actually, yeah. which gives you a sense. I think reading about Rasputin, you do get a much stronger sense of the climate of the Russian Revolution and yeah. the violence of the 1920s and so on, because you see just how how poisonous that atmosphere was in the mid-1910s. 
I know. Imagine if they'd had social media. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Things could yes. have got really bad. But the um, weird thing also is Rasputin is quite smart. So Rasputin says the whole time, there's not enough food for the cities. You need to get more food. He sent, did you see these absolutely shambolic letters that he sends to the Minister of Agriculture, Tom? No, I miss them. Um, so Rasputin is, is barely literate. So his, um, he sends, he sends these notes to the Minister of Agriculture. This is, I think, 1916 or 1915, 1916. Kind, dear apologies. Forgive me. Much meat is needed. Let Peter eat. Listen, help Rasputin. <laughs> Kind, dear apologies for the strange trouble, dear. Let them eat, not starve. They asked to eat. Rasputin. I mean, yeah. if you got that and you were the Secretary of State for Agriculture, you'd be motivated to <laughs> change policy, wouldn't you? Well, I suppose, yes. Or, or, or perhaps think we've got to get rid of this guy and um, murder him. Which yeah. is in the end of 1916 what happens. That's what happens, um, isn't it? And we get our, our second cross-dresser. Oh show. God, Prince Yusupov! Prince Yusupov. Now he's an awful—he's uh, an awful man, isn't he? A terrible, terrible man. Uh, claimed to be descended from the pharaohs and the nephew of the Prophet Muhammad, apparently. Yes, which, and which also, is, and I'm sorry to say, an Oxford man, a, a member of the Bullingdon Club, and a member of the Bullingdon Club. So uh, I think it was um, Stephen Clark, friend of the show, said, "Is he the only member of the Bullingdon Club to have murdered somebody?" I don't um, know. I'm sure the Bullingdon Club have murdered more people. <laughs> <laughs> just Rasputin. Well, um, according to the, the the play about them, I saw they did. Yeah, really. Uh, but that may not be strictly accurate. Um, um, so Felix is a he's club. a he's an absolute. That's right. I remember that. So Felix is an absolute spoiled brat, isn't he? He's the second son. He's oh, not his, a failure. Yes, his dad bought his mum a mountain for her birthday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he is the sort of he is a man that wants you makes you want to be a Leninist because he is the sort of embodiment of kind of greedy grasping entitled russian yeah elitist privilege and he decides that he's going to kill rasputin with a couple of other guys there's a guy called grand duke dmitry pavlovich and a man who's basic who's sometimes been described as the first fascist who's called vladimir purishkevich who's like a ultra nationalist anti-semite all of these and bizarrely they think that by killing rasputin they will shore up the monarchy because they think Mm -hmm. it's only rasputin who is damaging the monarchy um, so they come up with this scheme, don't they? They get cyanide, they get pistols, and they set a date, the 16th of December, 1916. And do you want to tell the story, Tom? Well, it is a good story. Yes. So, um, uh, uh, Yusupov comes in person to pick Rasputin up from his house. And it's kind of midnight, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Everyone thinks it's a bit weird to be. Yeah. And they, they drive back and Rasputin walks in. And Yankee Doodle Dan, what is it? Yankee Doodle Dandy is is playing on the. F- they basically set in. up this room, haven't they? This ba- this basement or something. Yeah. Um, with cakes. They, they, they specially furnished it in a sort Absolutely of way they think with with cyanide and all kinds of stuff. And also and Madeira, poison Madeira. I, so this is. It has to be emphasized. This is the story that is told later. Well, yeah, by, we by Yusupov. We'll come back but, to but that. But according to him, according to him, uh, Rasputin sits down, gobbles down a whole plate of like, cyanide lace cakes. Shed loads of cakes. Unbelievable. Shed loads of cakes, massive cakes. cakes. Huge. Yeah. Uh, then he knocks back a, an entire <laughs> bottle of poison Madeira. It has no effect on him. None. Not, none whatsoever. <laughs> so then they shoot him. Well, doesn't Yusupov say, have a look at this crucifix? You'd want to look at it because I'm about to shoot you. <laughs> and he basically Three shoots times. him. 
Three times. I think does he shoot him three times at first, yeah. or does he shoot him? Then he goes to his comrades and he says, "I've killed Rasputin. Let's go and construct our alibi and stuff." So they drive back and, and bury his to, body. But they drive back to Rasputin's house first of all, and one of them walks around in Rasputin's yeah, house to be him <laughs> to, to to fool people. <laughs> then they go back to the the Moika Palace, which is the place where they've they've killed him, and uh, to get the body. And Rasputin. You know, it's, like, it, off, it's like fatal attraction. It is. As Rasputin as his off is, is bending down, <laughs> Rasputin's eyes open and he kind of leaps up. Yusupov <laughs> <laughs> says, Yusupov, I have to read this because it is funny. Um, I mean, it's a terrible story. Yusupov says, um, a wild roar echoed through the vaulted rooms. He rushed at me, trying to get at my throat and sank his fingers into my shoulder like steel claws. I realise now who Rasputin really was. It was the reincarnation of Satan himself yeah. who held me in his clutches and would never let me go till my dying day. So that really happened. <laughs> and what is interesting is that he is writing this against the backdrop of the kind of the first horror films. So Nosferatu yeah. and everything. And you it's not too hard to see where he's getting the idea for all this kind of imagery. Yusupov probably himself isn't even writing it. It's a ghostwriter writing yeah, it. Yeah. And also, isn't it not the case that this is, some scholars have said this is clearly actually a ripoff of a Dostoevsky short story called yeah. The Landlady. Yeah. So Yusupov is almost certainly making all this stuff about Rasputin coming back to life. There's even and, and, claims and, and Raskolnikov the cakes. In, in Crime and Punishment. Yeah, with the old lady. Uh, yes, yeah, so, so Raskolnikov, the murderer of this old money lender in in crime and punishment he he is uh, he lived supposedly you know fictionally uh about three blocks from where rasputin is murdered i mean it's it's a, a kind of incredible yeah. synergy there it absolutely um, hangs over it all and they it? and they take his body don't they suppose and they they dump it in in, in the, the river. ice and they one do. of the kind of the one of the the, the favorite stories even then he's supposed to have scratched at the ice yeah but utter balderdash apparently all- so i mean basically what even the poison cakes supposedly aren't true because his Rasputin's daughter said he hated he didn't cakes. Eat, he didn't, yeah, he didn't. Yeah, he didn't. Cake. He didn't like had our sweet tooth at all. He'd never have eaten or played. And so the context for this, the context for this is that um, Yusupov has fled Russia after the revolution. He doesn't have any money. Yeah, and so, so he, he needs to. He needs up to make it as sensational as possible. Of course. But they definitely, we do know because there was an autopsy. The record of the autopsy is lost, but we do have interviews by the doctor who did the autopsy a year or so later and he said basically when they pulled Rasputin's body out of the river because the police find a boot and a sort of trail of blood they pull Rasputin's body out he's been shot three times um and and that's it so clearly these guys just basically shot it and Nicholas and Alexandra are devastated absolutely devastated and uh obviously it doesn't rescue the monarchy as the no, assassins hoped because i mean they've only got weeks left before the monarchy's going to fall and the bread riots and st petersburg and army mutinies and so on and, and they're they're kind of doomed themselves aren't they and that yeah. there's, there's tragic detail about when they are um so they're killed obviously more than a year later by the bolsheviks they're, they they bet they basically are taken to siberia so they make the reverse journey the romanovs to the one that Rasputin has made. So Nicholas, Alexandra, the four girls, and Alexei. And when they're taken down to a basement, as Rasputin was, to be shot by the Bolsheviks, the girls all have amulets around their necks with Rasputin's picture and a prayer, I think, that he had... Topaz stones, isn't it? Yeah. That was kind of sewn in. But as as they go down, they go past pornographic graffiti 
showing Alexandra and with Rasputin, Rasputin having sex with Nicholas kind of that's you know, right sitting sitting in particular yeah. on the side so that's the last things that they see it's a, it's it's a that is so story. sad actually yeah, i think it is, it is a sad story there is, is something it, it is there is something slightly readers digest about the uh the, the fate of the romanovs you know if you're a sort of um a middle-aged woman in 1950s tuscaloosa this is the kind of thing you read about and gets you very worked up but actually i think it is a genuinely kind of moving story i mean they're completely out of their depth you know they're not great people alexandra and, and nicholas they're kind of hapless but um, being murdered in a basement is probably not the not the fate you'd have wanted for them. Just like Rasputin being thrown in, shot and thrown into the river. Yeah. So, so I mean, what what I have kind of reading about it and the the contrast between the the incredible stories and what seems to be the truth. I mean, it kind of it's quite sobering. You know, when I think about all the stories told about various Roman emperors, yeah, I was about to you, say, yeah. you really kind of because <laughs> because why. So I, I guess there's a question here, uh, Carl Johan. Rasputin's yeah. penis is famously available to see in a sort of pickled state, but where does the idea for that come from? Are there lots of pickled penises lying around in Russia? Patently European, is the pickled dick real? Yeah. So I, I, yeah. I guess, you know, wh- why? Obviously, it's not his... No. Because his, his body penis. was, his body, he, he wasn't castrated after his death, as some so, people claim, and his body was burned. So, so it's not so, him. So, so why, why are these stories? Why is, why, why is all the stuff that you get in, in uh, Boney M's single there? I, 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 it's the, it's the kind of the swirl of factional and religious rivalries where yeah. people opposed to him have reasons to come up with these stories. It's, I, I guess, the, the, the relaxation of censorship. After after nineteen oh five, that yes, yeah, people in newspapers yeah. can start writing this stuff. Um, the revolution, kind of, you know, there's there's absolute free reign to it. There's royalists arguing that, um, you know, he re- he destroyed the monarchy. Without him, yeah. it would all have been fine. Um, and people on the left who see him as symptomatic of the decadence yeah. of the Romanov monarchy and, and of the of, church, yeah. Absolutely. But also, it's it's also us, I mean, our natural prurience, right? I mean, yeah. the fact that we're doing Rasputin as a subject, the fact that so many people sent in questions, it reminds me a tiny bit of Mary, we asked Mary Beard about gladiators. You know, isn't it weird that the Romans like gladiators? And she pointed out quite reasonably, we like them too. We don't like to watch them, but we like to talk about them. We all like to go to see the Colosseum. We kind of, we kind of have our cake and eat it. And in a sense, I think that's what we do with Rasputin. Rasputin also, for Westerners, doesn't he also reinforce a sense of Russia as Eastern? Those exotic? Russians. Yeah, that's so what that's the last M. line of the song, isn't it? I yeah. mean, that's basically yeah. this sense that this is what happens in Russia. It's an exotic world of of people who castrate themselves and whip themselves and have it, it, you know. It, isn't it also though that uh, a lot of the um, the source material for his life w- w- it wasn't available yeah. uh, during the Soviet Union? So. But you know the interesting thing: the Soviets were very down on Boniem. So Boniem, when they released music in Russia, were not allowed to include that song. Why was that? Because basically the the Kremlin didn't like people, you know, being rude about the Romanovs. Well, no, I think they thought it probably glamorized the Romanovs and glamorized Rasputin, and that this was basically. A, oh, I see. This was an inappropriate way to think about this. What they would have said was a terrible chapter in. Yeah. In Russian in Russian history, I guess. Um, supposedly, even when 
Bonian played in Poland. The Polish authorities said, "Don't don't do Rasputin." You know, it's not our overlords are not very happy with it. But now, um, uh, uh, there are people who th- who do think he was a saint in Russia. Who, I mean, just as there are people who who see Nicholas and and Alexandra as, as yeah. saints, they see you know he's been uh, he has been rehabilitated. And I think there are there are kind of nationalist historians, yes, who say that Rasputin has been framed. Who, that um, actually he never, you know, he never groped women. He all of these kinds of things. So they've almost gone to the opposite extreme, um, and they say he's just been smeared by kind of foreign propaganda and stuff. So it is an extraordinary, yeah, story. extraordinary story, and it actually, for you know, Tom, it does make me think about um, Suetonius and the Twelve Caesars and yeah, all those it, sources it, for Roman emperors yeah. that are wallowing in the same kind of pornographic because, material. Um, the um, you know Iliador's kind of muckraking that he he wrote in America and, and Yusupov's book. Uh, you can kind of imagine, you know, if those are the only sources that you have yeah. in 2000 years time, what would, what would you make of? Well, you just, yeah. Rasputin. I mean, it'd be very difficult to, I mean, it would be impossible to get beneath it. So yeah. Yeah. Really fascinating. Uh, so a fascinating story in itself and fascinating historiographically. Uh, and with that, I think rara Rasputin. Do, do we want to um, remind people, Tom, of our fascinating club, a really yeah, exciting club. Yeah, we do. We do. So it's restishistorypod.com live stream and the bonus episode and yeah, this exciting Discord chat room. Uh, yeah, you can. We'll, 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 so we'll put a reading list on that. We'll put um, books on, about Rasputin we particularly enjoyed, um, all that kind of stuff, uh, and you'll get bonus episodes. So if you have further thoughts about this that you'd like us to talk about uh, in next week's episode, put them there. Let us know. Um, put it on Twitter, whatever. Uh, so uh, lots to look forward to. Um, and our next episode is, I'm delighted to say, on the subject of cricket to mark the start of the ashes. So uh, we'll see you on there on Thursday. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com That's restishistorypod.com Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean, and I'm thrilled to say that this week, Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed, because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog, Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.